You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Vonnie Quinn and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen obviously a rise, a surge, if you will, in civil unrest, public demonstrations uh, stemming from the death of George Floyd and the use of police force uh, against minorities. And there's actually been the use of uh, various forms of the U.S. military to deal with this. A number of retired generals and admirals have spoken out with alarm really about adding active duty military to law enforcement and using the Insurrection Act to get that done. We are so fortunate this morning to have retired Admiral, uh, Navy Admiral James Stavridis, uh, former military commander in NATO and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist to join us. Admiral, thanks so much for taking your time. You wrote a column uh, just recently about uh, you know, using U.S. active duty military uh, for some of these uh, civil issues. Give us your thoughts and that you're that you want to express as well. Some of your colleagues in senior military. Sure. Let's start, Paul, with just kind of doing the numbers around the country and matching the challenges with uh, what uh, resources are available. So in this country, there are uh, close to a million law enforcement officers. And then we also have 500,000 National Guard. These are uniformed personnel. They're associated with the Department of Defense. But key difference, they work for governors. They're citizen soldiers. They're not full-time soldiers. So when you add up law enforcement and National Guard, it's 1.5 million. Um, I have not seen anything in the challenges of uh, protecting these protesters, making sure these demonstrations stay peaceful, stopping any violent crime, stopping looting. Those are all real challenges, but it is a set of challenges that 1.5 million men and women can handle. So my view, and that of many of my senior military colleagues, is don't take the active duty military who are uh, sworn to uphold the Constitution of the United States, who have a significant role defending the nation outside of our national borders. Don't bring those active duty folks inside the country and apply them against protesters. Not an appropriate use of the Department of the Defense uh, active duty personnel. Yeah, Admiral Stavridis, it's Vani. Just on that note, I mean, it's very unusual to see retired officers speaking out mm-hmm. about a candidate or a party or particularly what a president might say. And we saw it this time. We not just saw it from one, but we saw it from several. Four former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in fact. So it's not just that it's ill-advised. It's actually being condemned, would you say? It is. And this is a really important point, Vani. I've never seen the uh, entire active duty four-star military community so significantly united on a key issue. So it it goes from people like General Mattis and General Kelly, who were actually part of the administration at one time and have been very reticent about speaking out, across the spectrum to people like Admiral McRaven or General John Allen, who have been fairly critical of the president, to people like myself who are kind of centrists who are in the middle, as you mentioned, four chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's really quite remarkable to get that unanimity of view across this whole community. And it's because it really touches a nerve when you send active duty military against the citizens of this country. It should only be done in extreme circumstances. Um, And this does not appear to be a moment that would call for that. Admiral, on Sunday, Colin Powell, Colin Powell, the foreman, uh, 
Joint Chiefs and Chairman and Secretary of State, called out Republican lawmakers for really having, quote, nothing to say about President Trump's militarization of protest security. What is your sense of kind of what your expectations are for what Congress should be doing here as it relates to the military's use? Well, I, I stand with General Powell on this, and, and I think the way to phrase it is the way you just did, Paul, is um, it's, it's not incumbent just upon Democrats or just upon Republicans uh, to stand up in this moment. And this really touches on why are these protests occurring? This is a significant moment in American history. We need the Congress to be part of the solutions. And so that runs the gamut, I would say, from uh, initiating appropriate uh, reform in police departments around the country. It, it includes calling on the administration, the executive branch, not to use active duty military uh, against peaceful protesters. Um, it includes providing resources to address uh, the economic impact that comes out of COVID. So we need our Congress to step up on all those kinds of issues. I have tried to shine a spotlight on this issue of active duty military not being used against these protests. Yeah, Admiral Stavridis, you've just said a few moments ago that this is not the moment for it. Do you ever envisage that there might be a moment for it that the active military would be called out against U.S. citizens? I think it's unlikely, but it has happened a couple of times in our history. Um, Once was uh, most recently in the Los Angeles riots in the early 90s. And, And here's a key distinction, Bonnie. If we are going to bring active duty in in a moment like that where a city is on flames and um, there's really no semblance of order in the city, it's got to be under local authorities. It can't be driven from Washington, D.C. in a circumstance like that. And then a second example would be back in the 60s when some of the southern states refused to integrate Mm. uh, their schools and federal troops were required during the Kennedy administration. So yes, there are extreme circumstances where this might be called for. This is not one of them and never should active duty military be used against peaceful protesters. That's a violation of the constitution. Admiral, just about the 30 seconds here. What did you think of General Mark Milley, uh, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs accompanying the president in Lafayette Square? I think it was a mistake. And I think if General Milley had that one to do over again, he would not have done so short of a direct order. Um, I know he is uncomfortable being involved in politics, and he knows that's not his role. I I thank God that he did not appear in the photo op on the steps of the church. Uh, Let's hope that he can stay out of politics. We need the military to stay out of politics, the active duty military. Well, Admiral Stavridis, definitely looking forward to reading more of your opinions. Always enjoy listening to what you have to say. Of course, former military commander of NATO and a Bloomberg opinion columnist, extraordinarily decorated uh, soldier as well. So thank you, General, for, for joining us. So, Paul, it is really an interesting time. And, of course, you know, a couple of presidents cited. And I think that that moment has passed in this particular, you know, week of social unrest. But it came close at one one or two points there last weekend to it definitely escalating for the worse.
It, it was, and uh, I think the Admiral's uh, commentary about kind of, you know, mixing politics uh, with the military is, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that he's been concerned about, I know, really, for the last several years. And again, having, uh, you know, probably coming to the fore once again uh, with some of these uh, civil unrest and, and demonstrations and, and the use of the military in, in kind of managing them. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. Let's turn to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Tara LaChapelle. She covers entertainment, telecommunications, and deals for Bloomberg Opinion. Tara, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I'm a big fan of the M&A market. like to see deals come across the tape. Usually on that merger Monday, we see some big deals. And I always, the first thing I do when I see a deal uh, a story out is I go to the bottom of the story to see who the advisors are on the deal. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening in the world of M&A. How are bankers getting deals done? Yeah, so I mean, the world of M&A is, is very old school in that it all still revolves around meeting in person. You know, the handshake is the final way to seal the deal, and it's a lot of travel. And, you know, I think some bankers, you know, would still be willing to get on a plane for, you know, something, a $100 billion deal like the AstraZeneca um, talks that were reported over the weekend with Gilead. But at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of people are still reluctant to travel. Um, a lot of CEOs, especially at companies that are a bit more tech savvy, like Verizon, we saw this with, for instance, are willing to look at doing pretty sizable deals, negotiating them over things like Zoom video conferences. In the case of Verizon, just a few weeks ago, they bought a company called Blue Jeans Network which happens to be a video conferencing company, a lot like Zoom. And so they bought a video conferencing company, but they also negotiated that deal over video chat, which is really unusual for the M&A world. And I think it's something more and more bankers and CEOs are going to start to embrace in these next few months and quarters as, you know, people are still a little bit hesitant to go completely back to normal. So, Tara, in your opinion piece today, you point out that M&A is actually down 50% this year, but may pick up eventually when, when things start to reopen a little wider across the United States. But in terms of these deals that you are seeing, that $400 million deal for Blue Jeans Networks, for example, are they because of the pandemic or had they been envisaged before the pandemic? I think, you know, what we're hearing is that there were deals that were probably in the works just before the pandemic, maybe even some transactions that were pretty close to getting announced or, you know, getting close to agreeing on the terms, at least. And then the crisis hit and it kind of just puts everything on hold. It would make sense for bankers to kind of go after those deals first and try to get those across the finish line now if the strategic logic is still there and if you can still come to some sort of agreement on the price, which is obviously difficult. We're seeing that in the case of Tiffany and LVMH, where they probably both still want to do the deal, but the price may not make as much sense at this point. Um, But then I think there are other industries where, you know, some of these companies are still flush with cash. They still have growth needs. And it probably makes sense if they can get any companies a little bit cheaper because of this, that it makes sense to do that. Of course, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for it since the market is up the way it is. But I I still think, you know, all roads are going to lead to deals with this. I think there's just a lot of pent up demand and a lot of companies that need the growth. So, Tara, what are you hearing about when you when you talk to bankers across the street and uh, other sources you have? I mean, is the expectation that the M and A market's really not going to come back until we really, you know, get a vaccine and kind of put this pandemic behind us, or is there a sense that you know companies and bankers and lawyers can adapt and, and can kind of start getting things done even beforehand? Well, we'll see. I do think though that 
bankers are going to try their darndest to try to get deals done. You know, I think that they know there are companies that were on the lookout for deals before this. So why not keep trying and why not try to adapt to this, you know, new normal, if you want to call it that, you know, we are seeing, you know, Intel did a deal over Zoom video chat. As more and more companies become comfortable with, you know, not meeting as often in person, not doing as much travel, having to do diligence and do due diligence in new kind of inventive ways, you could see some companies more comfortable with that than others. You know, some industries that might just be hard to do, like I've heard investors kind of half jokingly say that, and a big oil giant that wants to survey some land for a beleaguered oil company somewhere in America could use a drone, let's say, to try to look at that <laughs> land and look at that property, which I don't know how feasible that is, but I do think people are starting to think, you know, how can we look at this differently and still get deals done? Yeah, and I mean, definitely drones are being used in all sorts of sectors. Why not this one, right? Talk to us about companies also getting ready for an onslaught of, of <laughs> interested buyers. You cite a statistic which states that more than two dozen public companies adopted so-called poison pills between March March and mid-April. Why is that? Yeah, this is fascinating. So a law firm, I believe it was K&L, they said that more than two dozen U.S. companies have adopted poison pills, which is a lot more than we saw last year. And I think that tells you that there are vulnerable companies, companies that were probably, you know, their businesses were shut during these lockdowns and really affected by the lack of consumer demand that they are worried about activist shareholders coming in now or opportunistic buyers, you know, PE firms are going to be on the prowl. And I think they're starting to put their guards up and say, you know, we we don't want to be bought on the cheap. We don't want to be, you know, taken advantage of in this crisis. So you're starting to see some companies put up their defenses. But I think it's interesting because just the environment that we're in right now, right. You know, there's been a lot of social activism over inequality. You know, we have the unemployment rate as high as it is. It's a really touchy thing to yeah. have an activist campaign or a PE company, you know, using this as an opportunity like that. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. We always love having you on. Tara LaChapelle, entertainment, telecommunications, and deals columns for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read Tara's work at Bloomberg.com slash opinion, plus all the other great opinion columns that we have. You can also get it at OP. I and go on the Bloomberg terminal. The Bloomberg Opinion folks do outstanding work. I highly recommend it. some big news out of Apple today, not necessarily a new product introduction or a new phone or anything like that, but certainly news on the back end. They're going to make their own chips. And what, what does this really mean for Apple and for other players in that tech supply chain? To answer that, we welcome Dan Ives. He's an equity analyst at Wedbush Securities and a Penn State alum, I should note. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. How big is this news from Apple about their chips? Yeah, it's great to be here. It's big in terms of, you know, Cook and Cupertino have talked for over a decade about this potential move. And it's really a shot across the bow at Intel and other semi-players that Apple is just going to have more and more control of their devices. You've seen it on the iPhone. Now it goes to the Macs. And I think this is going to be a trend. You're going to see more and more as Apple looks for more full control over its devices. So, Dan, also thinking about... do they make chips for their other products as well, or is it just, just for the back? Yeah, if you look on the processor side, they've done it from a chip perspective in their iPhones, as well as some of their other you know, core devices. Now, there was a view that 
this Mac move maybe could have happened three, four years ago, but in terms of some of the technology innovations on the ARM side wasn't there. This is probably about a year ahead of expectations if you look relative to the street's perspective. I view it as an uh, incremental positive for Apple and incremental negative for Intel, uh, just given what this really says about going forward in terms of how Apple is really viewing the chip ecosystem, especially in their own devices. Now, we knew this was coming for a little bit of time, Dan, so why is the market reacting now? Because this has really been something, it's always on the come. I mean, even if you go back to 2005 when Cook talked, you know, and when they were to talk about the grand vision from Apple, but it was thought that this is something from a Mac perspective that really couldn't happen. The fact that they ripped the Band-Aid off and now it's going to be likely announced on June 22nd at the virtual developer conference, it's a surprise. I think it just shows the innovation that Apple has been taking more and more. Even when you look at some of the 5G battle versus Qualcomm, more and more you're going to see Apple continue to look to own the chips, build it, because they want more control over their devices. And what that says for investors, it's more margins and more cash flow. It also gives more risk, though, to the company, right? Because if it's if there's any kind of supply disruption, you know, in its own ranks, that's that's worse than than you know if a supplier has a supply disruption. No doubt, it does put more risk. But I've about as much confidence in Cook and Cupertino as I do in Sully Sullinger to land an airplane. <laughs> and I think it comes down to the confidence that Cook and Apple build with investors. The more control they have, they have more control over launches, over timing, and over even profitability and where they could take it. So I think this is something, at least from an investor perspective, you want to see have Apple have a more control. And also it's more differentiation versus the HPs, the Dells, traditional PC, given it's not the same chip. So, Dan, you know, I'm looking at the Apple chart here, another all-time high today. What's the call out there on the street here uh, for Apple in the world of that, that's likely to be altered for the certainly the near term, maybe the intermediate term, maybe even long term? Yeah, the call, I continue to view it a year from now, there's a $2 trillion market cap. And I think the first step was to get through this COVID-19 dark storm. And you've seen it get there through the services business. That's about five to $600 billion, we believe, from a valuation perspective. Now it's the drumroll to just a massive iPhone 12 product cycle with 5G. We think about 350 million of 950 million iPhones worldwide are in a window of an upgrade opportunity. You start to put the math around it, some of the parts. I mean, I think this is a, a stock that has a four in front of it. And I think you're going to continue to see this get re-rated. And in our view on FANG stocks and tech, well, we're still in the sixth, seventh inning. Still think there's 20, 25% more in this rally as we look at the rest of the year. What's next for Apple? What's the next uh, sort of launch of products, and when will the consumer be ready to, to eat them up? Yeah, in terms of from a product perspective, we know about iPhone 12. The AirPods, if you look at that, they're unslated to sell about 85 million units 
this year versus 65 million last year. So I think there'll be a new device there that they'll be launching. But the big thing is going to be on services. Right now, the missing piece in the puzzle is content for Apple services on the streaming side video. I continue to think between now and the rest of this year, they look to acquire a major Hollywood studio to fill that content void, especially in what you're seeing from Disney, Netflix, and others, you know, HBO, Peacock, going after this massive streaming opportunity. I think that's probably the next piece in the puzzle that investors are hoping to see. Just, uh, Dan, thinking about these FANG stocks here, just kind of ripping once again, what's your thought on kind of just this group overall? It's had such a great run. Give us your thoughts. Look, my view is that it's a, these are safety blanket stocks in a Category 5 COVID storm, which is how they've continued to navigate, and, and, and many of them hit all-time highs. But, but ultimately, I think the second part of that is the rebound. I think the strong have gotten stronger, and you're seeing it from streaming and Netflix and e-commerce and Amazon, social media and engagement with Facebook and advertising and Google. And then you look at Apple, that's one where you have a ma- massive iPhone cycle on the horizon. I still think fang names lead this market higher and overall in tech. That's why we continue to think it's a green light to own these names, especially on the second half macro recovery plays, which will be the other leg in these stocks. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. Always great to speak with you. That is Dan Ives, equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. And of course, Apple was higher today by about 2.5%. Not the best performer among uh, the tech stocks, but in the S&P 500, it certainly helped. But we saw uh, advanced micro devices up more than 5% today, Paul, and uh, NVIDIA up more than 3% too. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, tech stocks uh, uh, getting a lift here, and uh, and as Dan has mentioned, you know they've been obviously the drivers in this market for more than a decade, both on the upside and the downside here. So Apple, another all-time high today, just extraordinary. Moving to a slightly different asset class now, and that is venture capital. We're excited to be joined by Mark Klein, who's president and CEO of Sutter Rock Capital. Now, of course, some early backing that Sutter Rock did was very profitable. Exits include Facebook, Twitter, Dropbox, and Lyft. And the current portfolio companies include Coursera, Lime, Nextdoor, Palantir among them as well. So clearly some smart guys there with you, Mark, including yourself at Sutter Rock Capital. Mark, give us a picture of the environment right now, because obviously we're looking at private equity, uh, you know, really reining in its horns, if you like. And I'm wondering if the same is true of venture capital with the market drop earlier this year. Did valuations decrease significantly? Are they are they still at those levels or are they coming back? Sure. Thanks a lot. Um, you know, obviously, the market, uh, the public markets collapsed at the beginning of the COVID crisis, going down, you know, anywhere between 30 and 35 percent, depending on what indice. And they've subsequently rallied almost all of them back about 50 percent. And as you note, uh, Nasdaq making a new high yesterday. Um, the, on the, the venture capital side, I think you had a bifurcation. Um, uh, venture capital valuations tend to lag uh, and the private valuations tend to lag what happens in the public markets and when you do have almost a v in the in the public markets the the movements are actually pretty quick so there were some cases where companies were in need of financing and did significantly down rounds um, and as but there were others that continued to perform and actually were having up rounds during the last couple of months 
what we've seen in the secondary markets is there is a fair amount of selling that has gone on um, at discounts to um, prior rounds that had occurred in the last three, six, or nine months. I think those are fairly fleeting, and the opportunity set becomes uh, the ability to move against the opportunity set is is pretty rapid as uh, blocks of stock come up for sale and you have to make a determination whether you want to participate or not, and then they move away, especially when you have equity markets rallying like they did over the last couple of weeks. So, uh, Mark, one of the areas as we think about this pandemic world that perhaps uh, you know may be a little bit of a beneficiary is uh, education technology with this schooling from home, what are, how do you think about that space? And, you know, what are, what are some opportunities do you think going forward? Sure. Um, well, I, I actually think that unlike you know, simply a, a COVID tailwind that some other industries are enjoying, I think you're now seeing a, a, a fundamental shift in education and online education. And I, just bringing it home, the idea of having a college student and let's just say they're graduating seniors starting as a freshman next year, and that you're looking at a private education bill of, call it $75,000 a year, and the first six months is going to be spent virtually um, to go to some very nice liberal arts school. I think the, the, the world is going to shift away a bit from that. Um, in the public markets, you see significant performance by some of the online education companies like Chegg that's almost doubled since the, the, the pandemic started, or 2U, which is about the same. So I do think the market's starting to recognize in the public markets that um, the need for online education is, is actually structurally shifting. We're fortunate that we have two of those names in our portfolio, Coursera and Course Hero. Um, both that are experiencing, as you can imagine, and this is documented in, in public information, uh, extreme you know, usage of, of their products and, and sort of way outside of what they had initially determined from you know, just general understanding of the marketplace. So I do think that there is these tailwinds uh, and the structural shift will, will lead to more and more opportunities in the public market for private education private education companies actually coming public, and there are several of them that are now multi-billion dollar privately valued companies. Right, including, I'm sure, Coursera, which is one that, you know, so many people have, have signed up for. It's still private. You're 45% involved in that. But who wins out here? Because there are many, many great companies. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the, the, the peer group of Chegg right now, and you're seeing Bright Horizons. Strategic education is a very interesting one as well. Obviously, you have K-12. Does it depend on what teachers you get? Does it depend on how many people sign up? Does it depend on, you know, what you get with your certificate at the end? Well, I, I mean, I think, first of all, lumping all of um, online education or even in, in one bucket is, is challenging. You, you know, on one side, you have uh, the corporate training side, which is a pluralsight or a Skillsoft. Then you go through, obviously, the K-12 post-secondary and, and lifelong learning. And, and I think in each segment, there are clearly folks that are executing better than others. Um, I think, in fact, Pluralsight announced that they were doing an offering 
yesterday after the stock has rallied materially during the the pandemic. But uh, I, I think a lot of them have an opportunity to be successful. I think the you know the proverbial uh, butts and seats businesses I think are a little harder than uh, the online side. But if you look at the you know the Udemy's of the world, Udacity's, right. um, Masterclasses just yep. did a capital raise. I mean, there's plenty of them. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. Mark Klein, mm. President and CEO of Sutter Rock Capital, based in San Francisco, on uh, some of the venture capital uh, opportunities out there. And we spent some time talking about the educational technology, and clearly in this pandemic world, as we all have kids at home, whether it's grade school or college, uh, trying to work from home on the educational front is a challenge, to say the least. 